Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the honor of reading our scripture passage today. It's going to be John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 can be found in your pew Bible on page 833, and it'll be on the screen as well. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, good morning. Colton, thanks for reading that passage for us this morning. Well, even though it is the day after Christmas, uh, today we're finishing up our Christmas sermon series, uh, preaching through the introduction to John's gospel, the first 18 verses. And so for all of you people who already have your tree down and your decorations packed away in boxes, bear with us. Uh, We're just being more historically Christian than you are, and we are sticking with Christmas here. And kiddos, it looks like you got the hang of it, but first, uh, kiddos ages uh, four through kindergarten can be dismissed for children's church, and they already are. (laughs) But we're keeping the gas pedal down on the Christmas themes uh, one more time for this Sunday before we enter into the new year. And I've heard many people complain, and myself have complained in the past about the consumerism of the Christmas season. Right? We decry the, the excess and the unnecessary gifts and the obvious materialism of the whole thing. And, and you won't hear me disagreeing with any of that. But I think part of that critique oftentimes is mistaken. Now, don't get me wrong. People cursing and trampling someone just to get a PlayStation 5 on Black Friday is, is pretty much an expression of evil in our world. I think we can acknowledge that. You won't hear me defending anything remotely close to that. But, but where I think this critique about Christmas is mistaken is with regards to the apparent excess or extravagance of the Christmas season. Uh, you could ask the question, do you really need that? About so many facets of the holiday season, and we would of course answer, no, we don't need that. And that's the whole point of the thing. Christmas is a feast. Of course I don't need to spend a little extra money to get my spouse a nice Christmas gift. Of course I don't need to set out such a big meal for me and my family. Of course I don't need to uncork the nice bottle of wine that we've been saving for years for this party. But I get to. If Christmas is truly about what we claim that it is about as Christians, namely the birth of the Savior of the world, Jesus, then feasting and extravagance are totally appropriate at this time of the year that we are celebrating that thing. And in fact, what Jesus wants to say to us from John chapter 1 this morning is that we need a God who is himself extravagant. 
Extravagance is at the very heart of Christmas because extravagance is at the very heart of our God. And so as we look at God's extravagance, we're going to see that in three different points displayed this morning. So first we're going to talk about God's gift to us, then the source of that gift, and then finally the power of that gift. The gift, its source, and its power. But before we do that, let me pray for us that the Holy Spirit would come and guide us and teach us from his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we we thank you for the chance that we have now to pause and reflect over your word. And as we do so, I pray that from the fullness of who you are, you would pour your grace abundantly into our lives. For our weariness, for our emptiness, be our sufficiency and our fullness today. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, let's look at the gift that God gives to us. And to study this passage and understand really what this gift is that God gives to us as Christians, as you heard in the reading, we're going to circle back to verse 14 this morning, which Benjamin wonderfully expounded for us on Christmas Eve, if you were here for our Christmas Eve services. We thought that text demanded its own treatment on Christmas Eve, but we're going to come back to it now because verse 14 actually sets up a lot of the ideas that trickle down into verses 15 through 18. So let's read verse 14 again and familiarize ourselves with it. Would you look at that verse with me? It says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now on Christmas Eve, if you were here, you'll remember, Benjamin highlighted for us four different phrases from this verse and spelled out beautifully what they mean for our own lives. And I want to return to just one of those four phrases this morning. The phrase that surrounds the word glory. That we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, glory is a common word that we use in in church settings, but when we speak of God's glory, what what do we mean? Well, the, the word that was originally used in the Old Testament that we translate as glory actually is a word that means heaviness or weight. It refers to somebody's, somebody's mass, their heaviness, most, uh, most obviously. A person's glory, then, refers to the weight of their presence. So often with, with God, his glory is manifested visibly as this light shining around him. What's called in the Old Testament, the glory cloud. What we'll see as we pick back up in the book of Exodus in the spring that that actually comes down and descends into the tabernacle. And that shining light was a visible manifestation of God's presence. Now to get this in our mind, think about what happens when you're at work. Some of you, you've been working, you're like, I've been working from home for like almost two years. But try to stick with me here. Remember the, the glory days of the office. But think about how the, the room changes in an office when you're standing around the water cooler talking and your boss walks in. Or think about when you're at a Christmas meal or dinner or gathering and you're hanging out with family or friends and the, the, the grandfather or grandmother 
that well-respected patriarch or matriarch of the family walks in the room. Their presence demands a certain level of reverence and respect. They command the room. They change the weight and balance of the room in that sense. Their presence is like gravity that sinks the space in the room down and everything rightly comes and hovers around them. And when Jesus stepped onto the world stage, the gravity of this world permanently shifted because his glory, the weight of the presence of God himself, stepped into world history. Jesus himself carried the glory of the presence of God. God's gift to this world is the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. God gives to this world the weight of his very presence. God's gift is himself. And this is precisely what John speaks of famously just two chapters later in John 3.16 when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That truly is the greatest gift that has ever been given. God's glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. So that is the gift. Let's turn to look at the source of the gift. Or, Or to phrase this point of our sermon as a question, where does this gift of the glory of Jesus' presence come from? Or we might ask a different question. Why is it that God gives us the gift of his presence? Why does God give us the gift of his presence? Well, let's look at verse 14 and verse 16 and see if we can get an answer to this question. So we'll read verse 14 again and then hop down to verse 16. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16, For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. Verses 14 and 16 are directly related to each other, centered around that concept of fullness. Now, if you look at verse 14, at the end of that verse, that that phrase, full of grace and truth, you might think just by, by first read that that phrase refers to the Father. So that this verse says something like, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father who is full of grace and truth, speaking about the father. But that phrase full of grace and truth actually relates back to the word glory. So if you read the, 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 the phrase like this, it says, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Glory which is full of grace and truth. Now, why does that matter? (laughs) You might say you're just making very small distinctions between words. It may be, but think about this. What makes God's person and presence so weighty so glorious is precisely the fact that he is full of grace and truth. Oh, in college, 
I was not a big man on campus by any means. I know that's shocking to many of you. Uh, but I was known for something uh, among my friends, and even some of my people that I was just acquaintances with knew me for this thing, and that was spilling coffee everywhere. And uh, it was liable to get, like, if you were in my, uh, my circle, uh, you might get coffee spilled on you or one of your objects. I actually spilled coffee on a laptop and completely ruined it. Um, it, was, it was bad. And I still do that from time to time. And the reason why I spill my coffee so often is not necessarily because I'm a clumsy guy, although I'm definitely not the most coordinated guy you'll meet. The reason, though, why I spilled my coffee so often was because I would always try to fill my cup of coffee up to almost near the brim so that I could get just all that I could out of that cup of coffee. But that meant if something was in my way and I tripped or we were in a busy cafeteria and I accidentally bumped into somebody, that coffee would then spill out onto other people, onto the ground, onto my objects, all over everything. (laughs) Coffee stains on everything. But friends... John is telling us that God is like that. God is so overflowing with goodness, with grace and truth, that all you have to do is bump into him and his goodness overflows. It spills out. Benjamin and I were talking this week, and it's, it was fun to see how this, this, this image implanted itself in both of us as we thought about it more throughout the week. And it's an image that has precedent in history. Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian, described God as a fountain that's prone by his very nature to overflow. And this is foundational to what we mean when we talk about God being Trinity, being Father, Son, and Spirit who are distinct, but yet each fully God. You see, God is not a set of static ideas. God is a person. God in himself, from all eternity, as long as God has been God, which is to say forever, has been delighting in himself. Father, Son, and Spirit, all delighting in one another. So when we think of God, sometimes when we think of what God was doing before we created, I think we just kind of think of him bored in a room by himself, just kind of scratching his big beard, you know? But really, we should think of God as overflowing with happiness and joy and delight in who he is. And that, over, that, that, that joy, we might say that light and life, overflow then into everything that he has made. Now, Colton back there in the booth is going to put up a picture on the screen. And this, this picture was done by a Christian artist. And while it doesn't capture theologically everything that we would want to say about the Trinity, and indeed, if you focused on certain aspects of it, you might say that's kind of problematic. I do think it beautifully captures this concept of God being full of light and life. So you see there are three cups, and each cup is being filled by another. And so each cup is overflowing with delight in the other person. God's cup, what that picture is trying to show us, is that God's cup is always full to the point of overflowing. That's just a visual to try to lock this into your mind. Thanks, Colton. You can take that down now. 
But this is precisely what John means when he says in verse 16 that from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And when Jesus came, the glory of God, the weight of that infinite fullness of goodness took on flesh and walked among us. What John then goes on to highlight in verses 16 and 17 is that God's glory, his fullness, is what causes him to be lavish and extravagant with his gift of grace. So if you would look with me at verses 16 and 17. It says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now do you see that connection in verse 16 between the fullness of God and the extravagance of his grace? That that word for at the beginning of verse 16 links verse 16 in with the last phrase of verse 14, full of grace and truth. So as we're reading, Verse 15 is this parenthetical point about John the Baptist that John puts in. But he then continues his idea about God's fullness manifest in Jesus in verse 16. He's saying, since God's glory is made manifest, the glory of his fullness, then from that fullness we receive grace upon grace. In other words, who he is in himself as God, being full of light and life, leads to extravagance in the way that he deals with his people. Extravagance is the picture that we should get when we read that phrase, grace upon grace. It should bring to our minds the picture of an ocean with wave after wave of grace coming in and crashing on the seashore. The grace of Jesus, in other words, because it comes from the infinite fullness of God, is inexhaustible for you and towards you. It never runs dry. It is harder to exhaust the fullness of the grace of Jesus Christ than it would be to drink down the oceans with a straw. And this extravagance of God is exemplified on the stage of redemptive history. That's what John is saying in verse 17. So I think we have a tendency when we read verse 17 to read, for the law was given through Moses. Ooh, <laughs> bad. <laughs> but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's what John's saying at all. God graciously gave the law to his people. And we're going to talk about that January, February, and into March as we study the Ten Commandments. He graciously gives the law. He doesn't have to give them light and guidance to help his people live rightly, but he does. But Daryl Davis, a member in our church, helped me see this point this week. The law was not in and of itself extravagant. It was gracious, but the law didn't go above and beyond. But Jesus, God giving of his very self to us, taking on human flesh, was extravagant. What John is saying in verse 17 is that the law merely pointed to the character of God and showed people how to live. 
But that same character and glory of God to which the law pointed came himself in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. Extravagance and abundance overflowing towards his own out of the infinite bounty of the fullness of who he is. That is the God that we serve. He never runs dry. And not only is that the God that we serve, but that is the God that we need. Because as sinful human beings, we operate our lives not out of fullness, but out of emptiness. We live our lives as human beings from a scarcity of resources rather than an abundance of resources. Now, when it was in its heyday, I loved the show The Walking Dead. Many of you probably have seen it or heard of it. The show has now dragged on way too long and it's become a total cash cow, in my opinion, and has lost my love and fandom for the last four years at least. But it, in all of its brutality, was a wonderful exploration of themes relating to human nature. And so if you don't know, the show it was, was kind of a case study in what would happen in a zombie apocalypse. So there's this contagion that gets loose, and in an instant, people start turning into zombies, and the human beings that are left are instantly thrust from abundance into scarcity. Their whole lives get turned upside down. And so everybody in an instant has to start scrapping and clawing, just trying to get the basic needs of human life, food and water, shelter, survival. And this is a good picture of what life is like east of Eden. We live in scarcity, not in abundance. You see, ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden and were exiled from that garden, we have been living in scarcity. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed abundance all around them. The garden was teeming with life. They had fruit from every fruit tree they could ever want, ripe and right in front of their face to pick and eat and enjoy. And the real abundance came from the fact that they enjoyed fellowship with God face-to-face as his friend. They experienced the glory of living in God's presence, and because of that, their cups were full. But when they rebelled against God and they were exiled from the garden, they were exiled from the fullness of God's presence. Their cups were suddenly dumped out on the ground and empty. And ever since then, we have all been living with empty cups and a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Without the presence of God, we live our lives out of emptiness and scarcity. And we live our lives like people trying to find food in famine. We, We frantically try to take all the love all the material possessions, all the accomplishments, and anything else that we can wring out of this life to try to fill up our emptiness. We run to relationships, to shopping, to alcohol, to our children, to our retirement funds, to our vacation time, and a million other things to try to fill up our empty cups. 
And when we spend our days trying to fill our cups with the polluted water of our idols, what overflows out of us when we are bumped or nudged is toxic sludge. Our lives spew pollution upon those we come in contact with. When we are bumped, we snap at our children. We gossip about fellow church members. We hold on to grudges. We relentlessly push others down in promotion of ourselves. We abuse our spouses. We emotionally distance ourselves from others. All of these things come as a result of our emptiness and trying to fill our cups with things that are not God. We desperately need the fullness of the presence of God to overflow into our empty cups. And that is why in the gospel, God gives us the weight of his presence in Jesus Christ. The fullness of his presence in Jesus Christ is to fill up our empty cups with himself. But the question then becomes, how do empty people get filled up with the fullness of God? Well, let's move to our third point and we'll see how that happens. We're going to look at the power of the gift of God's presence. And verse 18, I think, brings this all home for us in a way, especially when we look at it in the trajectory of where John goes in the rest of his gospel. So if you would, please read verses, verse 18 again with me. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. Now, the word there that's translated at the end of verse 18 as made him known in our text is actually the word from which we get our English word exegesis. Now, if you don't know that word, exegesis is is a word that talks about interpretation. It talks about drawing the meaning out of a given text. So for instance, every time that I stand up here to preach to you, what's in the back of this is hours of looking at God's word, trying to discern what did God and the human author mean when they wrote this and trying to draw that out and make it clear for you all. That's exegesis, drawing out meaning, interpreting it and making it plain. And what John is saying here is that Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus is the interpretation of God to us. Jesus makes known to us what God is truly like. And so if you want to know what God is like, fundamentally, if you're here this morning and you're somebody that's not usually here, you're somebody that's seeking, asking this question, what is God like? The simple answer of the Bible is look at Jesus. As he says later on in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And you see, this is what John is driving at. In order for us to be filled up with grace upon grace, in order for the presence of God to enter our lives, in order for the fullness of God to fill us up again, we have to behold him. But you might say, like John does in verse 18, well, no one has ever seen God. 
And John would say, until now, until the glory and fullness of God put on human flesh, until Jesus exegeted God to us and made him known, no one had seen God. But in Jesus Christ, we see the weight of God's presence. And so John's gospel then, everything after verse 18, is Jesus exegeting the glory of God to us, is making God known to us. And so as John's gospel goes on, what does God's glory look like in action towards sinners? In other words, where can we look to behold the fullness of God being abundantly and extravagantly poured out on empty people? The cross. You see, the cross in John's gospel is the place of glory. And this is, this is probably lost on us today because the cross has become so culturally ubiquitous. We wear it on our necks and put it in as decoration in our homes. But the cross originally was not just a form of execution. It wasn't just comparable to the electric chair, for say. But the cross was a form of public execution and humiliation. It was where the Romans sent their worst enemies and vilest criminals to die, marred beyond recognition, suffering gruesomely, stripped naked in shame. The cross was the very opposite of glory. And yet out of the abundance and overflow of the fullness of his love, Jesus Christ died the death of a humiliated slave and in that place of shame on the cross revealed to us the fullness of his glory, his extravagance and abundance to sinners. You see, Jesus, though he was full of divine light, life, and love, emptied himself by becoming a man. His cup was poured out and every last drop was shaken out of him. Think about this. The one whose cup was eternally full cries out on the cross that he is thirsty. It's a cry of emptiness. And as that wonderful hymn of Charles Wesley, And Can It Be, states, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's the glory of God. See, the beauty of the gospel is that precisely at the moment when Jesus was empty and spent, Precisely the moment he was publicly humiliated and ashamed is the moment when the fullness of his eternal glory, the extravagance that overflows out of him, was revealed towards sinners and shone the brightest for all with the eyes of faith to behold. Simply put, because Jesus was emptied out, you and I can be filled up. And so church, my encouragement to you today is to behold him, to look at the glory of God in Christ revealed to us on the cross. 
Behold the one who sacrificed everything for you. Behold the one who gushes forth with love and resources for your every need. When you look to him, you are filled up by his extravagant love in a way that no possession, no relationship, no accomplishment, no perfect vacation, or nothing in this world could ever fill you. Jesus is the one that your heart was made for. Drink from the fullness of his eternal fountain of light and life and love that's revealed to us on the cross. Drink until your heart screams like David, like Benjamin read in Psalm chapter 23, verse 5, my cup overflows. And you see, when God's presence gets inside of us, when we are filled by the Spirit of God who speaks the love of Jesus to our hearts, then we begin to look more and more like the overflowing fountain that is our God. You see, the power of the gift of God to us in the gospel lies in the extravagance of his love. And when we behold the extravagance of his love displayed on the cross, it overwhelms us and transforms us and changes us. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that when we behold him with unveiled face, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so as Jesus fills us up with his love, we become transformed. Our cups become so full that when people bump into us, what should flow out to them is not toxic sludge and pollution, but the healing water of God's presence. When people bump into us as followers of Jesus, what should flow out of us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You see, as we drink of his love revealed at the cross, we become more thankful people more generous people, more long-suffering people, more forgiving people, and people more and more who love the truth. And so church, as we go from here today, my, my encouragement to you is simply this. Fill up your cup under the fullness of Jesus' love given to you on the cross. Behold his glory until the love that he fills you with is pouring over the sides of your cup out onto others, blessing the world with the light and life of Jesus. Jesus has made known to us what God is like. May our lives do the same to others to some degree. May we show the world what the life and light of God looks like. As we say, like David, my cup overflows. As this time, I'll invite the band up here to lead us in a final song if you would pray with me. Jesus, thank you that you are a, an ocean of grace for our need. That your grace upon grace swallows up all of our emptiness and fills us to the point of overflowing. Lord, today, may we behold your glory in Jesus Christ. And may that make us different people. People who, whose first instinct 
is to overflow with love and the goodness of who you are towards others. So Lord, as we see Jesus, make us more like him this Christmas. It's in your name we pray. Amen.